0: Matters here in Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at iProperty Radio, or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined by Keller Williams, John Leterno from Chicago. And John is the division leader of industry engagement and investment opportunities at KW Commercial. John, you're very welcome to Property Matters.
1: Thanks very much. Appreciate the opportunity to be here with you.
0: Um John as I mentioned there you're joining us from Chicago but you were in Dublin in in very recent weeks um and what? I got to meet you at the Ipav um the the 7th um the 7th European Valuation Conference and we will touch on that in a few moments but you might just talk us through your work at Keller Williams or KW Commercial
1: Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. So I'm one of the three national directors for KW Commercial. Uh, KW has around 180,000 agents around the globe. We're definitely in, in Ireland. Great to have a presence there and in many other countries. So I oversee the commercial real estate operations of the brand in the United States, along with two other leaders, Alicia Shepard and uh, Cynthia Lee. And we're actually the only national commercial brokerage in the United States that is female led currently. So we have a really diverse group of in both our leadership, executive leadership, as well as uh, directly in the commercial side of it. So I'm very involved in commercial investment real estate. I've done that since 2005. But I'm also heavily involved in the realtor world and that's that's kind of a different thing uh, in the States maybe compared to in Ireland in that you have IPAV, which is one national organization, right? And, and I love IPAV, an IPAV member, a proud member of IPAV and love what they're doing to be the voice of real estate in Ireland. In the United States, uh, the realtor world is a little different in that we have to belong to a local, a state, and a national association. So we have to belong kind of at three different levels to uh, the realtor world. And each of them has a different focus, a different, um, uh, uh, you know, charism, if you will, of what their their issues are. But overall, it's all about protecting private property rights in the real estate industry and home ownership, right? Um, so currently, and just to back up kind of, uh, my experience on the other side of things. So I'm currently the president of the main street organization of realtors, which is the seventh largest realtor association in the United States. We have about 20,000 members in our association. Uh, if, if you're thinking of it visually, think of Chicago as kind of a castle, we're sort of a moat that surrounds Chicago. So we're everywhere sort of, but the city proper itself, Chicago has its own association car. Um, and we are kind of around them. So we have about 20,000 members there. Uh, 20,500 or something. Uh, so I'm the president of that organization currently. I'm also on the board of directors for Illinois Realtors for our 51,000 across the state. I'm actually a director for the National Association of Realtors and the board of directors there for our 1.596 million members. And then also serve on the commercial committee nationally and then five or six other committees, work groups, and task forces kind of down at the local, state, and national level. So I'm heavily involved both in advocacy in residential and commercial real estate and just trying to really raise the bar in the, in the real estate industry.
0: OK, brilliant. So you're going to have not only from your own experience, but also from the experience across those local, regional and national organisations. Um, Correct. So I, I mentioned there that actually we had the opportunity to meet in Dublin a couple of weeks yeah, ago we at the Valuation Conference. And I know that actually you had delivered um, a talk online the year before. So mm-hmm. I was actually very familiar with your work. Um, again, this was the European Valuation Conference. Um, hosted in Ireland. So not all of the uh, the topics might have been as relevant to the Irish audience. However, you discussed some topics that haven't impacted the Irish market yet, but I yet. think they might just.
1: Yeah, it's coming soon. Exactly. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. So look, um, maybe talk to us about some of those topics, particularly, you know, around um, cryptocurrency, um, NFTs, and, and maybe some of the Wider trends that are impacting on real estate that sure. at a global level, not just the U.S.
1: Sure. Um, I'll start with uh, if we go way back in time to the first session I presented for for uh, uh, iPad was actually on AVMs and the inter- AVMs were kind of first crashing into your market at that point. And that was really an unknown and what it would do for valuations and what it would do for, for customer or owner um, confidence or owner belief in the value of a valuer, right, if you will. Hey, if my Internet says it's worth this, why do I need a valuer? And that's a battle we've been we've been wrestling with over here for a very long time. So it's interesting to see how that story is developing over there and the, the sort of disintermediation that can happen when AVMs get between a, a valuer and their client. Because that's, that's the goal of them here was to separate us from our clients in many ways. And that's starting to take place a little more as people uh, put more faith, again, in, in an internet algorithm and then in a valuer who actually saw the property. So it's, that's one note of caution. Then I raised that flag a few years ago. So I continue to raise that flag for, for valuers and for consumers because you can't trust, you can't trust a, a program that's never stood in your living room and said, oh, wow, that's a great kitchen you've done. Or you've, you've upgraded this, you've done that. They can't take that into account um, so that's the one the other as far as the uh, Bitcoin stuff which you spoke on most recently uh, that's been interesting because it hit with a splash but hasn't really gotten that deep yet and and it's it the massive fluctuations and its value are probably the number one reason that people are not committing to it the second well actually I should say I should flip that the number one is that the United States government doesn't recognize it as legal tender right so let's it's a shadow currency, if you will. It is perhaps tolerated, but certainly not well embraced in our fiscal system. The only country in the world where it's actually legal tender is Honduras. So of all those little countries, I had this big map, this tiny little dot of Honduras, it's the only place you can actually use it for legal currency. Our listing platforms and buy and sell systems and conveyancing systems have no capability of of doing anything other than U.S. dollars. So even if you and I agree, hey, I'm going to give you 32 Bitcoins for this property, you have to convert it to dollars when you go through the process of conveyancing, paying transfer tax duties, stamp duties, whatever you want to call it. All that has to be paid in dollars. So, at some point, they're forcing the currency to, to go back to cash. And that way, it's sort of trackable and out. But when properties have been trading, there are some other tax risks and things that happen because that's um, uh, Bitcoin's considered an investment. It's not considered a currency. So, there's it changes the tax structure when you buy or sell homes here, too. So, there's risks there additionally. And then the final one we had a lot of fun on was medical, well legalization, shall I say, of marijuana. Did you want to cover that lofty and high do. topic? I.
0: I, I. If we're going to have no, some fun
1: no with it no <laughs> oh no it was definitely intended i'm good with that
0: <laughs> yeah and again you know this is something that because you know, there were issues like I said that mightn't be directly of impacting the irish market it doesn't mean they're not going to be in Absolutely. the near future so yes i think it's really and more more importantly then it means that if we're following in the footsteps of others it means that we've maybe some outline of what to expect by understanding the maybe the psychology of um how it was impacting on prices. Sure. Talk us through some of the the stats that you had.
1: So it's, it's interesting times in that um, initially the use was predominantly and solely, well, medical, right? And that they found that at certain points in treatment areas, medical or natural marijuana was a better or more homeopathic or more holistic treatment or more effective treatment than a lot of chemically produced things. Now, this started as kind of... Um, hedge medicine initially, right? And it started as folklore, like, yeah, you know, and when I had cancer, I used marijuana and it was better than opiates or better than this. And and it eventually fed its way into medical research and then became like, hey, this may work. There may be something to this. That then stepped up to the point where states were legalizing it for medical use only. Um, like California did that. And you had to have a medical card at one point. You'd go to your doctor and say, well, I have glaucoma or I have depression. Well, all of a sudden people Everyone in the state had glaucoma within about a week, it seemed, right? So perhaps it was, uh, the system wasn't exactly used the way they wanted it to. Now people who did have a legitimate medical need absolutely had access to it. The most important part of that was they had access to very well-cultivated, well-grown, safe product that wasn't coming off a street cut with who knows what or added into who knows what. They did what what kind of crazy harm to people's bodies. So it actually refined the game, just like you have these craft brewers popping up all over that are hyper-refined in the way they make you know, beer or whiskey or wine or whatever that might be, you have a lot more knowledge of what's going into it. And a lot people care a lot more about what they're putting into their bodies that way, right? So it grew from medicinal, and then eventually some states started flipping and going, "Hey, let's make it recreational." You know, you can own up to you can own and grow up to five plants on your own. You have your own little grow facility, right? Hey, wow, that's crazy in some states. Um, but the funny thing is that even in states where it's allowed medicinally. Is great, but for uh, recreational use, it's actually still federally illegal. So a local police officer might say, Hey, Carol, I see you're smoking a joint on the corner. I can't touch you. But if a federal officer walks by, they can arrest you for that because it's still a crime. So it's a very interesting patchwork in that it's not federally decriminalized, it's only local. And the areas where it's been recreationally decriminalized, there's been about a $20,000-ish, $20, $28,000 property value increase in cities where it's been legalized for a, a significant period of time and uh, for recreational now, Can we break
0: use. that down? Because there's a lot to untangle there or disentangle, really, uh, yeah. fr- from what you're saying. And one of the things that I, that really struck me when you were delivering your talk on the day, yeah, was one of the points that I had in my head actually came in through the Q&A, and it was, you know, are we are we confusing cause and effect so is it a case that um maybe the the disposable incomes in the area are higher and therefore that was driving up prices you know how, how can you be sure of cause and effect
1: well the the methodology that was used and I can I'll, I can get the study to you that uh that came out of it the study that was used for that did did balance out like total number of houses and income it, it Balance those factors out, and it you, it equivalent, equivalent, equivalized, equivalentized, um, equalized. That's the word. Uh, I have not been using the product this morning. I assure you, it's <laughs> early in Chicago. Uh, um, they balanced out all the socioeconomic factors to make it a fairly level study to try to remove some of that bias in it, because that's the concern. You say, well, if you just Shine that narrow beam on a very affluent neighborhood versus a non affluent neighborhood. Well, oh gee look the values went higher who saw that coming, right? So they did normalize all those values when they did that study. Okay And
0: isolated this as being
1: They They tried to is it exact probably not and and we're not far enough away from the data to have you know a 20 or 30 year haul There's only been a few years, right? So, but the other interesting side note of that is the effect it's having on commercial real estate, and that to me is a little more fascinating because definitely it's a little bit more of my world, and I do a lot of commercial investment real estate and commercial and investment real estate. But the effect on commercial has been fascinating in that grow facilities, like you go to Colorado in industrial areas where grow facilities are allowed, there is no vacancy it's at zero they, they they're building buildings as fast as they can because there's so much demand for this and prices are insanely high and that's squeezed out in many ways marginalized other owner users like machine shops or warehousing facilities or uh production facilities because they can't they can't pay the rent they don't have the margins in their business that the marijuana guys do uh so they're getting squeezed out by landlords going hey you know what you are paying this much rent i need to get this much because i've got a grow person who'll come in here tomorrow and pay me a ton more for this building so it's actually having an interesting knock on effect and then it's creating some, some disintermediation of industrial neighborhoods. In retail areas, the sales tax it generates are massive. Let's be really clear. There's a huge amount of tax on this stuff. It's just like gasoline. I know you guys have very high gas. We have our gas here is hovering around $3.50 a gallon, and that's a US, not Imperial. So we have uh, the smaller American gallon compared to the to Imperial, if you're going to compare it. but. Um, of that 60-ish percent or something is taxed 70% is tax. I forget the exact number. but in marijuana you're seeing taxes on that of 30, 40, 50, 80, 100 percent on it. Huge tax numbers. and municipalities are going, well, wait a minute. So I'm a municipality. I have a budget shortfall, COVID happened, prop you know not everyone's going to restaurants so I'm not generating sales tax. And this is a difference between you and us and that you have a VAT that's on there. We are uh, use tax. So if I walk into a restaurant and a hamburger is $10, it's $10 plus 9.75 or 8.75%. There's sales tax that goes on top of that. So we always go, plus you guys are a net number. So our municipalities who are retail based, who had a lot of retail stores and COVID that shut down. They're like, man, we're not getting, no one's going to restaurants. They can't, we're on lockdown. So like, but if we legalize weed, we could make a ton of money and everyone's sitting at home smoking weed or eating edibles or brownies or whatever. And there's lots of very interesting varieties of things they've done with this. Um, you, we can make a ton of money on this. And during COVID these, these dispensaries had lines half mile long waiting to get into them unbelievable they were even doing curbside delivery i was in new york uh recently for a conference and they have these winnebago's these big like think breaking bad winnebago all done up painted with this huge marijuana lineage on or logos and stuff all over it It says mobile weed delivery you text them on an app boom they show you know they show up on your front doorstep you walk out done contactless have a nice day
0: yeah you know it's such
1: a different world now
0: but there's so many things that i that uh, again i i would just like to kind of clarify so we understand then yeah. you know if there was likely to be the same impact you know or actually be really interesting maybe to do some research into europe and into countries where maybe this approach is taken so mm-hmm. in terms of like you were saying the the impact on com- on the commercial market um, yes. so zero vacancy um so in Ireland we break down the commercial market so breaking down the commercial market um in terms of growth facilities, do they need to be zoned? Are there special permits? Yeah, crazy,
1: conditions? crazy permitting and zoning process is really challenging. They also have very high infrastructure requirements, a ton of water, a ton of, ton of energy because they're doing hydroponics, they're doing high intensity growth patterns and things like that.
0: I don't they, want to draw a line between that and data centers, but I would imagine in very terms similar. of growth usage...
1: Absolutely. It's very similar to a data center. Yeah, that's a great parallel. That's the one I was going to draw. Yeah, you nailed it. And they're um, they're they're very interesting because what a lot of people are going to is old data centers where the companies have outgrown them. The weed guys are on that because you have water, air, gas, electric, everything's high high end there. You know, they don't need the floating floors. And the controlled
0: and the sh- environments.
1: And controlled environments. Um, exactly.
0: One of the critical things is that in Ireland, uh, the delivery of data centers, they're classed as special infrastructure.
1: Mm-hmm. No, yeah, yeah. so no,
0: it's but a different system.
1: There was one nuance there that I wanted to get back to, though. And I said, if I'm a municipality and I'm hurting and I don't have taxes, so I allow, let's say we, we get the, the little city board says, yes, we're going to allow grow facilities and then we're going to allow retail dispensary in our town. Now, the retail building will now be allowed to sell, you know, over the counter. You walk in and go, I want this, that and that. And you pay your money and you walk out and away you go. Happy customer. Right. The interesting thing is that that both of those operations are federally illegal even though they're sanctioned by a local municipality, right? Mike, I live in Derry in Illinois, I'm in Naperville. If Naperville says we're gonna allow a dispensary to come here, the Naperville police cannot arrest or touch anyone who goes in there for owning and possessing within certain legal limits that. But again, it's federally illegal to do this. It's crazy. Be- that reconciled?
0: And it's it's, don't it's don't not, it's, let, government go. Government it's
1: government let go. It's let go in many cases. It's really crazy because it's, it's absolutely in conflict, but where it affects people's ownership is on the mortgage and in the debt. And I touched on this during my presentation because a whole lot of mortgages in the United States are underwritten or sort of backed by what we call GSEs or government service enterprises. So like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, these huge government organizations that offer lending to people, primarily residential, some commercial. And if you have any kind of marijuana facility or grow facility, you cannot get a federally backed mortgage on anything with any kind of marijuana used to it because it's illegal. Well,
0: It doesn't matter locally
1: they don't know no so now a lot of people just go ah you know they they put a blanket over it and hopefully appraiser didn't see it or they didn't note it or you know if they're in commercial property they have to go to maybe a second a local bank who kind of doesn't mind but if that bank for example gets fed gets money from the the federal reserve right they because banks borrow money from our federal reserve bank like the big mega bank which actually isn't the government it's private but that bank lends money to the smaller banks who then lend it to the people in the street well the fed cannot lend money that they know is going to marijuana facilities. So these, this bank who's gonna lend on this has to find private capital or other money, well, then they're gonna raise the rate on that or they're gonna changes the lending scenario. It's really a crazy kind of domino effect of what happens.
0: But is this a circumstance that, you know, that kind of, there's some legal there. is there, is that a circumstance of um, culture moving faster than policy and legislation? So is there an expectation that policy and legislation will catch up with culture?
1: I would say yes and no. Okay, when uh, when innovation happens, bureaucrats pounce. Let's be really clear, right? Always, right, and law's written in blood. So um, innovation is happening faster, yes, absolutely. However, um, our government generally never misses an opportunity to tax something. So they found, hey, people want this, people love it, we can tax it and make a great margin on it, and the feds aren't enforcing it, let's do it. And that's kind of what's happened, sort of on the side, if you will, right? Federally, there have been laws to uh, working their way through Senate and Congress for years and years. Everyone tries a new one every few years and it dies nationally to decriminalize. At some point, maybe five, seven, 10 years from now, that'll happen. But the states or the local municipalities who are allowing it, really, probably are not quite as thrilled if that happens, because then the feds might throw an overlay tax on it and potentially reduce the margin that the locals are getting. <clears throat> you know, the, the, the pot gets smaller to make another pot reference, but yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I, I was going to let that one slide. Ah, you
1: know,
0: <laughs> following the money, you know, it's always a good rule when you're trying to predict where policy is going to go. Mm-hmm. So therefore I can absolutely see how it's a very compelling argument for a local authority that's down on taxes. You know, yeah. regional government's down on taxes and um, they need to get their income up. But they can only do that if that's what the people want.
1: If, so, um, If that's what the board approves. Let's be clear, if that's what the city managers approve, if that's whatever the voting body approves, not necessarily all the people, because keep in mind, depending on municipalities, sometimes they're voted on by a small board of four or five, seven people, and there's not a popular election for this.
0: Are those people democratically elected to those positions?
1: They are, but if those seven, you now, so it's an indirect relationship, right? So they'd say, hey, if I represent Ward 4, I represent 5,000 people in my town. But if, if a majority of the people allow that, it would take a whole nother election cycle, a change of administration and then a whole change of policy and then putting an in person an in town business out of business to get them out. Do you think that's going to happen? Not really. Once it's in, it's in. When the camel's nose is in the tent, the rest of the camel is coming, generally speaking. Right. So it, it's very rare for, and I've yet to see a program get undone, if you will because the the municipalities love them. And I'm not saying this just from a tax perspective that way. There is legitimate good that can come from it. My mom suffered from cancer and died of it on 1417. And to be honest, the only thing that would relieve her pain was medicinal marijuana. You know, she could opiates wouldn't touch her pain and we got her some brownie stuff, you know, brownies with uh, with medicinal marijuana. And you know what? That was the only thing we could use to manage her pain in the end. So there is a value to things in nature, I think, that can affect our body in ways that ke- the chemical industry hasn't figured out. So I do see there's value to it. Right. I'm not discounting it that way. And there is a hu- there's a value to that. The other interesting thing <clears throat> and you say follow the money is. Uh, I always look at municipalities and say, no municipality or government entity has ever gotten larger and more efficient. It goes the opposite way, right? The bigger a thing becomes, the, the more Leviathan-like it becomes. But what's curious is what municipalities are doing with this money. So I'm in Illinois, right? I'm in Chicago in the Western burbs. There's a town just north of me called Evanston, Illinois. 70, what is I think 70,000 people and there are 60,000 people. And they had uh, marijuana sales and they're the first place in the country. And what they're doing is taking the revenue generated, the tax revenue generated by marijuana sales, and they are giving that as reparations to people who were denied access to housing or the ability to grow equity in housing. So it's the first time in the country that's been done. They're modeling that around the country, but it's a very interesting shift. On hey, we're just going to put more employees on the government payroll or buy more snowplows, which we have here, or whatever, whatever thing they're going to you know waste government money on. If you're anti-government spending, right, they're going to go, hey, we're going to try to put that money back to the community. So it's an interesting shift to see what they're trying to do with that money.
0: And John, will you will you break that down and explain that, please? Because you're talking about ten million yeah revenue in revenue, sales, in revenue mm-hmm. taxes coming in and being spent to deliver housing. Explain to me the group's that are going to benefit from this and how do we know yet how it's going to work?
1: It, yes. Well, they, that, that's been systemized. Yes. So what they're doing is the US has a long funky history, if you will, of um, discrimination in terms of access to capital and lending. And there's a process in the United States called redlining. And I will uh, quickly screen share uh, for those who are not online, I'll explain it. There's a fantastic book that I'd recommend. It's called The Color of Law, that especially if you're not in the states, this is definitely worth a read about how our lending world changed access to capital and how the long-term effect it had on building wealth multi-generationally, multi-generation, multi-generationally, and how it actually segregated America. So. This book is called The Color of Law. It is absolutely a fantastic read by Richard Rothstein. It's available on um, uh, Amazon. I believe it's Kindle as well, if you want to do a a book reader on it, whatever you want to do. So if you notice on the cover of the book, it has kind of a yellow and a red areas in different areas. Lenders in the United States from the very early days, the government would say, hey, you can't lend in this area, but you can lend in that area. This, This area we view as risky and they would draw a red line around that area and say, yep, you can't go here. So that was called redlining. So my grandfather came from County Clare to Chicago, November 11th, 1922. He arrived in Chicago. He moved to the Southeast side. He moved west of what was called Cottage Grove, three, four blocks west of there. The red line went down Cottage Grove into the east. So I imagine my grandfather moved in there as a renter. He couldn't buy. And I imagine a comparable African-American family, for example, moved in on the east side of that. Now you fast forward a year or two, save some money. My grandfather then bought a house at uh, 87th and Ada, then at 59th and Tallman, then he moved further west to Beverly, then Hickory Hills and kept kind of moving up the property ladder, right? As he had a family, bought a bigger house, moved further west to the suburbs and bought a retirement home and passed away. Now because east of Cottage Grove, those people couldn't get a mortgage. So even if you had money, they wouldn't lend to you in that neighborhood. Those people are still trapped there and have had been denied access to the lending product that would have let them start building that long-term wealth. And this, this happened all across the United States. This is just a very hyper local uh, situation in Chicago that I'm aware of just because we live this situation. This is across the whole United States. So there well, are.
0: M- how visible? How, sorry to cut across you there, yeah. but um, would people moving into these areas have known about that?
1: Rarely, but only because remember, this is in the met. 20s and 30s and 40s where it's not like you could go on the internet and say, oh, show me the red line map. And a lot of people were coming. This is also a period of what we called the Great Migration, where a lot of African-Americans moved from the South up to the North because they were trying to escape a pretty horrible fiscal and uh, prejudicial situation in the South. Like, hey, there's jobs in Chicago. It's booming. They'd come and get whatever they could and stay where they could. And they tended to neighborhood eyes. Well, those red lines happen to be usually drawn around neighborhoods. They'd be like, oh, cool, the Irish and Italian neighborhood, that's not a red line. That might be a little higher risk, but the African-American neighborhoods, those are red. That's risky. Those property values go down. And this was just built, baked right into the lending system.
0: What's the idea of the government doing that? Um, Even though they're backing finance, at the end of the day, finance is a commercial activity. And therefore, the commercial entity should be judging risk. So what's the idea behind a government doing this?
1: On paper, it was risk reduction. The real effect was absolutely prejudicial lending, and they just didn't want to give lending to people they viewed as high risk. And, and it was a absolutely slated against African-American community. No question.
0: Were, were these areas, zoned areas, were, was it really just about lending? Was it really just about debt oh, no. and risk? Or was um, oh, no. did other services follow? Were other services, um, schools, education,
1: well, that's the key. So if, if it, it, it's a very clear, 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 direct uh, connotation between rent, percentage of renters in a neighborhood and quality of schools. We see absolute direct, direct connections. The higher the percentage of renters in a neighborhood, the lower the quality of the school. So what we see then is in a neighborhood of renters, in a neighborhood of owners, historically, the renters will have a poor school system. Well, then you have a poor school system. Well, those people aren't as well educated. They can't get as good a job. Well, they stay renters. And it just keeps that that trap of you just can't get out because you can't go well i'm just going to go to harvard these harvard wasn't an option right good schools weren't an option uh access to public transport they couldn't ride the same bus that white people could to get to a job in a good neighborhood to earn enough money to move out like it it was crazy how institutionalized that was in our world
0: but just Book that you're referring to, you know, did that actually draw parallels with debt uh, and lending and other activities?
1: Absolutely, yes. Like yes. Healthcare, like education, everything. Absolutely, yeah. Because then you go, well, why I'm not going to put, um, and I'll use modern, things. I'm not going to put an Apple store in a neighborhood where people can't afford an iPhone. So I'm gonna go to a very affluent neighborhood where people can buy a thousand dollar phone. I'm not gonna go to a neighborhood where people earn $700 a month and they're not gonna wanna buy a thousand dollar phone. It doesn't make economic sense. I'll go where I can sell them to people who make $5,000 a month, I'm just gross exaggeration. But at the same time, then the the better retailers go here, the better stores go here, the better food goes here. And this has even turned into what they call a food desert. And I'm going really down a rabbit hole in Chicago, but on the South side, there's what they call food deserts where there's people who have to travel an incredible distance, even in a hyper dense city to get access to a grocery store. Because grocery stores don't even open in some of these very challenged areas, because they're like, we can't make it economically sustainable, even to this day, to this day.
0: Talk to us about the reparations and this scheme, because... You know, yeah. straight away we can see this sounds like a really direct way. You know, um we've a housing crisis in Ireland and I know that yeah. you're you're familiar with the dynamics of that. And Absolutely. actually we're not a mystery market. I mean the same dynamics are at play in many other places around the world. Right. Um but in terms of interventions and policies, I mean, look, with we'll, time we'll touch on policies like rent control ones that I call anti landlord and you called tenant friendly. Um, so we will, we will if we have if we have messaging. an opportunity to get into that. Can you explain in terms of the reparations uh, sure. for particular area because I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, so what Evanston, for example, and I mentioned Evanston, Illinois earlier, is doing, and they're taking tw- they're offering up to twenty five thousand dollars to predominantly African-American families who were denied access to housing or denied access to debt in the past to help them rebuild the equity in housing, to help get them on a property ladder to start building long-term wealth through home ownership. Excuse me, the the long-term net wealth of people who own a home versus who rent a home is, I forget the percentage, 80 times or 60 times, it's some incredible delta difference between homeowners and home renters by the end of life as far as their net value. And this is designed to help kind of get people back on that. Also, if they're at a very lower moderate income, this $25,000 would be enough to change them from a renter into a buyer because a lot of our federal lending programs, you can get into a 3.5% down. And then they can also get an additional grant to offset that down payment. So they could potentially purchase a home with almost nothing out of pocket use these funds to do that and now instead of paying 2000 a month for rent they're paying 1500 a month and they own a house and then it's going to rebuild the stability of the neighborhood because now you have homeowners
0: okay right? but how has the has the scheme been introduced yet do yes. we know how How is it identifying the people that will need? There's to a
1: whole application process. It's a messy process. I don't think it's a perfect process is what I'd say. And the long, it's only been a year in, a year and a half in. So again, we're not far enough from the data to see how effective it's been. I want to see this in five, seven, 10 years, because I want to track the home equity or the value of that area and of the neighborhood and of the people who came there. So it is a test, it is a test pilot. It's not something I created, so I don't have the intimate knowledge of that. The application process is you have to show some provenance and okay, this family was here and this happened. And so there is a process to that. Uh, as far as what the long-term effect and how corrective, how positively corrective it is, I don't know. And I'm very curious to see how that plays out. So that's the big yeah. question, Mark. We'll do this one next year and have more data. How's that?
0: Yeah, definitely. But also really what I want to see is how far back are they going to go? Because we know that some of these issues run right back.
1: Well, they'll um, go back to the 20s and 30s Is was some of the original vision on this. I'm not sure exactly how how they do the cut on that again? I'm not. I'm not that intimate with it, but they're looking back to some of the initial denial of services because in 1968 we passed um, uh, Federal Fair Housing Act, basically to end housing discrimination that you cannot discriminate based on race, color, you know, those things. But these redline, these fiscal policies were in place for a very long time. 93.9 Dublin South FM.
0: Well, look. Let's let's yeah. fast forward maybe to some of the more contemporary. Sure. Uh, measures yeah. that we're seeing in terms of rent controls, and I know that you you have a far greater familiarity yeah. with the Irish market than we would expect somebody um, working stateside to have. Yeah. But and as you're aware, um, our housing minister has just introduced a new bill to cap rent um, increases at two percent within rent pressure zones, mm-hmm. unless um, you know, unless the rate of inflation falls below two percent, essentially. Right. Um, and at the moment, at the moment, that's not looking likely um, uh, for the next. Oh, kind of no. We're entering
1: years. a significant inflationary market that's going to just crush landlords. But we'll talk about that happy topic in a minute.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> but in terms of rent controls, again, I mentioned you refer to them as tenant friendly. I refer to them as anti-landlord because genuinely that's how they feel. Oh, absolutely. impact in the Irish market. Mm-hmm. Um, but. One of the things I've, we've mentioned, and again, this seems to be this seems to be universal in every developed marketplace, that rent controls are generally seen by economists, independent economists, as not a good thing because they impact supply, which drives up. So they they lessen supply, which drives up prices, and right. and effectively feeds into this shortage. And yet, you know, even our most respected economists in Ireland have spoken out about this, and they've acknowledged that it doesn't look like the easy win. It does look like the easy thing to do, but actually the unintended consequences um, are far more detrimental on the market. So can you talk to us maybe about the experiences...
1: Uh, yes what a fun topic there. so the state of illinois in the earlier i think it was 84 early 80s passed a ban on rent control for the whole state at the state legislative level they said no one can put rent control in on the whole state can't happen there have been efforts to undermine that every few years someone floats a thing hey i want to overturn that I want to overturn that the last three legislative sessions they've gotten very very close this time i think they're going to eventually finally flip that the second that gets flipped any place that wants to do rent control can create their own rent control system. Right. And as realtors, we have a group called our which is a realtors, political advocacy or political action committee. And what we do is a, we're a lobbying group and a, a, an interest group who studies real estate issues and then, if you know, court, uh, you know, senators, congressmen, municipal people and go, hey, what issues are affecting you? What's affecting us and how do we work together to help preserve, again, property rights, home ownership in the real estate industry? And we have done white paper after white paper on this and even not just our own. So it's not like, well, of course, the people who want to not have rent control say this, we've gone to outside economists at every university here to Timbuktu. And the end result is rent control always ends up hurting the people it's designed to help end of story. And it is everyone goes, well, it just wasn't implemented correctly. No, it does not help the people it's supposed to help. And especially in our marketplace, has been. even the models, when you run out, the models are fairly disastrous and what we're seeing and I'll, I'll uh so we have a few things happening so chicago is in cook county we call it crook county we throw an r in there just because Chicago's a political machine right just for fun so hopefully give a little chuckle to some people out there no offense meant to meant to anyone who lives there but in cook county you have a few different things. So in Cook County, I'm in DuPage County, just to the west of that. Cook County is predominantly the city of Chicago, and then a little finger going out to O'Hare Airport so they can collect taxes from every airplane that lands there. Really look at the map, you'll see. And so um, in Cook County, they have passed several things recently. The first is what they call RTLO, which is a new kind of the tenant landlord ordinance that moves the needle very, very in the tenants favor as far as leasing goes and they're going hey the tenant has all these new rights that landlords don't have okay they move that pendulum way over a lot of it was response to to COVID and beyond. Um, at the same time. Right now, it, it, so many people went sideways during COVID, and the court system is relatively inefficient, that if no new people defaulted on their, their rent in Cook County, no one, let's say everyone paid all of their rent from now on, and we only had to begin evictions on the people who are currently sideways in their rent, there would be a four-year backlog before we could evict people from, their, from the tenancies across Cook County right now. And that's if no one else defaults, four years, okay?
0: Why is that?
1: Because they don't, they haven't paid and the court system stopped and COVID and it's inefficient and it just takes time. So now you have a whole bunch of properties that have very tenant-friendly leases. If the tenant goes sideways, it's going to take you years to get rid of them. At the same time, between 2019 and 2020 in West and South Cook County, property tax assessments went up 56% on average. And you go, well, that's no big deal. You guys are paying, you know, what do you pay in property tax there? A few hundred euro, a thousand euro. And I know there's the whole thing on getting your valuation done and resetting it after 10 years. I, no, I, but
0: it is, it is shockingly low when people complain about it. Oh,
1: believe me, you haven't even begun to feel that, right? So, uh, for example, I live in a, a fairly nice house. I mean, a, a mid $400,000 value. Our tax is around 10 grand a year for that, and it's cheap. Right. For where I am, a very reasonable, point. there's areas of Cook County where there are homes that are $200,000, dollars that will have a $15,000 a year tax bill. Okay. Tax bills higher than the mortgage if you, if you do the math. Right. Um, so when you look at commercial properties, commercial property tax assessments went up 56% between 2019 and 2020 during covid Property tax assessments went up 56%. The the assessor believed all the commercial buildings went up 56% in value. And then they have these goofy multipliers to eventually adjust the taxes. So I'm a landlord. I have super tenant-friendly leases. I have my taxes went up a significant portion and all my tenants are sideways and not paying rent and I can't evict them for four years. And now my roof went bad. The boiler is bad. The, The plumbing is bad. The sewer line, whatever it is, some huge capital event comes up. I don't have a shekel to put into this building. So what am I going to do? The building's going to run down the housing stock that it's going to turn into junk. Right. And now with rent control coming, what I can tell you is people are going, we're out and they're voting with their dollars in their feet. And I'm going to, screen share something and I'll, I'll explain kind of what I'm screen sharing as the long-term effect of policy is, uh, in comer- in Cook County. And this is our little map of Cook County here.
0: Yeah, and actually, John, just for anybody who's listening yeah. in on the radio or on our podcast for iTunes, the, all of this can be found at the um, iProperty Radio YouTube channel.
1: There we go. Okay, needed the plug. Great. Um, so this is a commercial listing platform, like a commercial MLS, if you will. It's not exactly an MLS, but it's close enough. So in Cook County in what we call multifamily properties, right? Which are non-owner occupied, you know, a four unit, six unit. This is any, any variety of multifamily properties. There's 482 properties for sale right now in Cook County. Okay? And this is kind of the, the physical map of it. You see where that's at. In DuPage County, which is where I am just to the west, there are 11. And of these, half of these are under contract right now. They're not actually really available. They're just, they're, on, they're dots on the map until they close.
0: What conclusions so, can we draw from
1: that? Very clear. Policy. High tax, low landlord protection, rent control is coming, bad fiscal policy, inability to, to control the outcome of your properties. And if you, if you don't think policy, you know, owners vote with their feet and their dollars, 482 versus 11. And what I can tell you is the people who are selling these, the vast majority of these people are not reinvesting in Illinois because they're very afraid rent control is going to get passed. They're afraid of high taxes unfunded pension liabilities. There's 240-something billion in unfunded pension liabilities across the state that eventually we're going to pay for. So there's some yeah. really crazy factors driving it.
0: And um, Honestly, that message that message, could not be more important for um, Irish policymakers to hear right now because what you're describing there, high taxation, low landlord protection, um, an unbalanced system uh, when it comes to fairness, onerous compliance, what we've seen and what our leading agencies, um, like for example, Sherry Fitzgerald, um, who are the leading agency in Ireland, a sure. agency, you know, they, they have stats that have shown us consistently that for every two landlords leaving the market, there's kind of fewer than one coming into the market. Oh, yeah. And yeah. landlord rhetoric in Ireland, really, we've been allowed to We've really allowed that to get distorted. And in fact, the data shows us very clearly that the vast majority of landlords, like 87% of landlords in Ireland only own one or two properties and they receive less than 10000 a year in income. And these are people that we call fat cats. Less mm-hmm. than 10000 a year after allowable expenses. Right. And they own one or two properties. And the vast majority of those that 87% own one property. Most times it's either through a pension or accidental possibly. Uh, yeah, most
1: people become accidental like landlords. That. And in, in carol in the, is
0: driving them out.
1: Yeah. So Carol, in the States, and I, I teach a lot of class on investment real estate, I say most people become accidental landlords accidental landlords one of three ways we call it hatch match and dispatch had a kid got married someone died it's a little indelicate but those are definitely the three reasons extra properties sort of appear well we got married and we had a condo or we had an extra house or whatever that might be so it's a little lighthearted, but roll with it um i will throw one other thing so this is all in you're going well john you know what they don't have rent control it's an imperfect yeah maybe you're just not right i can tell you that states that have it and cities that have it are seeing a similar mass exodus you go to california where it's very, very, even more so tenor friendly than this. There's a mass exodus of money out of California. And what's happening is people are going to California going, hey, I love the money I can sell my property for I, because a lot of foreign buyers love California. They're taking that capital and they're redeploying it to Arizona, to Texas, to Indiana, to Ohio, to much more tax friendly and more landlord friendly states. Okay. And what we saw in our arc of capital investment was generally this. We would see a California pro- person would sell a property at a crazy rate. Cause so it's on the beach and it's sunny California. Okay, great. They'd find a buyer, maybe an Asian buyer would come in, huge amount of money that California buyer would be like, well, I sold at a great dollar, but I can't buy anything here. That makes fiscal sense. I'm going to go to Chicago. Right. Was the old school because Chicago, I can get more yield. There's more room. And then the chicago people said well, I, I sold for a great number to this out of town guy but now i can't get my yield so they go to indianapolis indianapolis then go to columbus ohio columbus ohio then goes to dayton ohio like the money kept moving down to where people kept chasing the yield but now the world's so much more connected and hyper, hyper local and hyper global that the California people are like, well, why would I wait in Chicago? Let me go right to Indianapolis. Let me go right to Texas. Why would I, why would I start that chain? Let me go to the back end of that where that where it's really task friend, tax friendly, fiscally friendly. I'm not gonna have long-term problems I'm gonna have. And that way I can invest longer term so we're seeing a lot of money bypassing cities that normally it would have gone to and it's going right to secondary and tertiary markets that are more tax friendly with investment this is hundreds of millions of dollars so the end result of that is you have a shortage of of good rental properties so you end up being slum slum properties because then eventually you have to sell those at such a discount the only way you can make money is if they sell at such a horribly low rate that the new owner is like whatever pay your rent or don't i don't care it's a dump so it really is painful
0: John, what you're describing there—you know—in terms of capital bypassing, less investor-friendly locations—that's an absolute concern. I mean, that's a topic of, that's a hot topic of conversation in Ireland right now, and it's seen that policymakers just don't seem to understand or appreciate it, or they don't have the political bravery to to say that we need this and this. You know, this is how our global. Uh, capital system works. You Absolutely. know, just I, I don't know, is it naivety or lack of uh, political
1: no. bravery? You no, know I do? know exactly what it is. They think in election cycles. Let's be really clear. Yeah. They think in two-year, four-year, six-year cycles, because that's the most important thing. And the day you win is the day you begin running your next election. And, and we need yeah. elected officials, those who serve. I think it's great that they feel that calling and they serve. It's not something I do. But they also, the vision has to fit the, the task at that point. And sometimes maybe a little more stepping back from it a bit and going, OK, what's the 10 year, 20 year hold uh, effect on this? And, and that's not really a very popular thing to say because that's a difficult conversation and they don't yeah, that does, don't that doesn't get real. Difficult conversations don't get you reelected as often. How's that?
0: You know, No, you're <laughs> real you've nailed it. You've nailed it. That's exactly what it is. And unfortunately, housing is a long term play. It, it, housing is always a long-term play, whether it's social housing, uh, attracting capital, or placemaking. The whole process yeah. of placemaking—you're talking about three election cycles or four—and no one's willing to make make the no. hard decisions. And it's something no. we've seen at the moment. And in fact, our housing minister, when he was introducing the latest anti-landlord measure, um, you know, he actually prefaced it and, and um, to, introducing tenancies of indefinite duration. My he God. actually talked about the importance of oh. not alienating investment coming in to the market because it was needed now that's that's you know I, in ireland we call that talking of both sides um,
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: it, it just doesn't make sense there's no right. way to reconcile those two things
1: no that's crazy uh, it, it's just it's it because i guess you you profit becomes a bad word Right. Because there's these greedy and, and the narrative we see here is that these are these greedy landlords who are just kicking back on the beach, being fanned by somebody, eating grapes and bonbons, while the poor working class people are suffering and scraping every penny like an Oliver Twist to try to to try to you know survive in this horrible world. And it, if people, you know, could maybe see the other side of it a little better, maybe there'd be a little more empathy. But more importantly, this is a place also where where the real estate profession can have a voice towards not just affordable housing, but accessible housing as well. And that, that's a conversation that has to happen, but it, ha- it does take the courage of an elected official to maybe cross a line to say, hey, you know what? It's not popular, but it's gonna take some pain now, but we're building something for a better future. And believe me, this this whole situation is, I'm not speaking, this is just an, isn't just Irish politicians. So please, this isn't crit- criticizing, You know a place near and dear to my heart i have a red password i'm an irish citizen i love ireland i have a home there right this is definitely american politicians problem too and and it is it is global global. okay so i please don't take it as a very anti-irish conversation this is this is about the difference between politics policy and the real world and and the people who live in it and try to make it a better place
0: I think housing being such a basic need should not be subject to political control. It's something that I, I've maintained strongly for a long time. And actually, you know, in Ireland, we have um, government, uh, government kind of bodies like um, Fall to Ireland, who oh, yeah. welcome yeah. people all, all over the world to oh, Ireland. Yeah. We have Bord Bia who talk about the quality of our food and they are not subject to Uh, um, elected representatives uh, who are focused on an election cycle and in fact so they can implement really good strategies that protect the industry while protecting the consumers and we just don't seem to have that in housing but we do have a new housing commission Mm -hmm. and um, I've seen that yes yeah only introduced this quarter so we're really interested to see if that will change but we definitely need to get to that point John I'm conscious that we're running close to our time here But I can't let you Goes go quick. without um without jumping on my hobby horse, which is um through Project Ireland, we're we're consistently looking to support the rollout of technology across mm-hmm. the built environment. And I think COVID has been really interesting. There's so many debates about working from home, home offices, what's shifted there, the use of the office, the future of the office, future mm-hmm. work, what that's going to look like. And I think that um, actually, you know, one of the people I respect most in this industry, Anthony Slumbers, really nailed it um, when he said the reality is 90% of all of our time is spent indoors where mm-hmm. somebody has built. Right. So therefore, real, the demand for real estate isn't going to lessen. It's just going to change mm-hmm. where we spend That's our time how we spend our time, how we socialize, how we gather. And I think that's really interesting. Technology has such a huge role to play. And I know Keller Williams prides itself yes. on being one of the most um, tech leveraged agency in the world. Absolutely. Can you give us maybe some of the trends that you're seeing and what we're likely to expect in 2020
1: 2022? Sure, sure absolutely. Uh, and I will make one final comment on the prior conversation, which is you talk about like board fellowship and things like that, great stuff. You can get so much more done when you don't care who gets the credit. It's kind of interesting how that works, you know? So, But if you need to be out there grandstanding, you may you, your vision changes, right? So if you don't care who gets the credit and it's about the greater good, you can do a lot more good is what I'll tell you. So um, back to that, technology. So technology has disintermediated the world, right? And you said, you know, everyone's working from home. I disagree. Everyone lives at their job now. Okay, it's a very different thing. You live at your job and that's a very different mindset, right? Not exactly quite the positive spin of well, work from home. That was like a benefit at one point. People like were dying going, I can't wait to work from home, right? No, 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 we all live at our flipping jobs right now in many cases, right? People aren't happy about this. Okay, let's be clear, right? Now I'm in my physical office separate from my home, I'm not at my house, but um, so that's that. Now the other part of it is that the other traditional model that we saw in technology in, in office employment uh, an example was what we call hub and spoke. The big headquarters is downtown. Everyone lives around it in the suburbs. You know, you live in in Kildare and Bray or whatever. You all head down to the docks and do your job and then you all head back home. Now with the advent of internet, we're seeing what they call hub and roam. There are central hubs. It doesn't matter if it's in city center or not. And you have the ability to just roam wherever you are as long as you have stable internet and you have an, uh, enough internet security to make sure that your communication is as secure as your corporate needs are. Who cares where you're at, right? Align your time zones and have a nice day. Um, There are some like GDPR stuff, there's some data rules, there's some taxation rules that, that can play into it, sure. You know, did you earn your income in this country or in this state versus that state, fine. But beyond that, absolutely it's going to change it. So where technology has come into is, it's actually changing the direction and the shape of new homes for the first time in a long time. Because prior to that, you watch HGTV shows, and please God don't, because it has nothing to do with reality in America. But what I'll tell you is they were like, look at this great open room and this lofty this, and it's open to this in the kitchen and all the space. Yeah, you put two people on the same Zoom call, one in the kitchen and one in the dining room, and they're going to be like, shut up, will will you? Shut up. No. So now we're finally seeing a bedroom count go way up because for a very long time people were having less and less kids and they'd say yeah three bedrooms fine whereas now they're going I need at least four bedrooms in a home even if I don't have kids you'd see maybe a couple or even a single person would buy a three-bedroom home or a four-bedroom home to go well if I ever do have someone a partner of whatever kind man woman child I don't care you have a partner and then you have a child I still need room to work on zoom I still need room to work at home so it's changed that dynamic and we're starting to see walls come back into rooms because people need segmentation so yeah. it's like, wow, that's crazy. It's changing the design ethos of where homes are going. I think it's yeah. fascinating that way. Um I think also employers have gotten lucky in many ways in that what they have quietly done and a friend of mine works for a major auto manufacturer here and he used to drive about 45 minutes to work and then he'd work all day and then he'd drive 45 minutes home and a great guy does awesome stuff. And what he found was like his 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 schedule, you know, he has an admin who controls kind of his schedule if you will and, and books his days and he does a lot of it was, you know, whatever 9 to 4.30 was his world. and um, now they're booking him from 8.30 to 5. Well, his his employer just slowly crept into the commute time. So now what we're seeing is your employers are like, well, you, you don't need to drive 45 minutes. You can work that hour. And we're seeing slowly there's bracket creep into or personal time to where you go, well, I got my commute time back. Ah, your employer figured that out and just started slowly bracket creeping into your time. So if yeah, you look at that, it's a very interesting thing. Yeah, but
0: have you seen in Portugal, I think they became the first country to... Implement the do not disturb. Mm-hmm. So your employer, your team cannot yeah. contact you outside of stated work hours.
1: Yeah. Good luck with that. Here, you're going to get fired. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to be honest, I actually had a conversation with some of our own property district. I would love for it to happen. I'm in no, favor,
1: but don't get me wrong. We, yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> there has to be personal responsibility, and Absolutely. there also needs to be boundaries. So, therefore, if you don't want to, if you don't want to read emails at weekends, don't read emails at weekends.
1: Exactly. Wait, that that's why morning. I'm in my office here, not at
0: Founders. home.
1: Yeah. Because when I leave, I leave. I, I. There are situations in real estate, for example, my world that require some urgency. There are not emergencies in most of my real estate. All right. There's nothing so critical at two in the morning, unless a building is on fire, and I've had that happen. Story for another day. Unless a building's on fire, it'll wait. We're good. Okay. You know. So um, get back to yourself. Get back to your center. Be a good human. Instead of. Don't be a human doing. Be a human being. That's what I'm going to tell you.
0: I love that. But actually, I you know what I think we're going to let your final words be be a good human because I think that's, that's really a, powerful, yeah. especially for the time we're in at the moment. And um, John, I could talk to you all day, and I definitely want to touch base with you in the next couple of months to look back and see how some of these policies are working as well. And you know, I, I appreciate there's a time lag needed there. Thank you so much sure. for being so generous with your time today. That was so Keller Williams. John Letourneau, Division Leader of Industry Engagement and Investment Opportunities at Keller Williams and KW Commercial. And that's it from us this week. Thank you for listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on sound. We're back at the same time next week. For myself, Carol Tallon and all the Property District and iProperty Radio team here, stay safe.